Missed the show, no problems, on point and on the podcast, the judge refusing to say the name of the Young Street killer so as not to give him the fame he wanted. But with or without this guy's influence, I'll talk to an incel expert who says the world he was part of has exploded during the pandemic, with some kids joining as young as nine. While autism didn't sell as a defense in this case, it is, in fact, a defense in the criminal code that can be used and used successfully. We'll talk about how. And what is Aaron O'Toole's plan to deal with climate change? Some in the party are concerned he's going to adopt the Trudeau tax. But how on earth will he reach his climate goals without costing us more? Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get to point. By getting through to you. That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Are you listening? It's like you're holding your breath for three years and you can finally breathe. It's not closure and it's not like I'm not happy. I don't feel like dancing, but I feel like justice has been done. Guilty and now one of Canada's worst mass murderers facing 250 years in jail. And um, you have been, of course, hearing the news all day long. But uh, the man involved with one of this country's worst mass killings is off to jail. And I had no, I had no doubt that this would be the outcome, but I was a little bit surprised by, I think, um, you know, what the judge did, which was send a very clear message. A couple of them. One is that autism had nothing to do with why Alec Manassian became a vicious killer. But she also didn't name him, which I'm, I'm positive is a first in this country. But Malloy also made clear she didn't want to give this killer the infamy he so clearly wanted that day. So she only referred to Manassian as John Doe. And I have covered several of uh, Justice Malloy's cases over the years. She's a terrific, terrific judge. Um, you know, she's always been very concise. No BS, very much to the point. And she's not someone who, who would seek the spotlight, but she is getting it because you know, she, she made what some could see as a political decision in her ruling, you know, when she decided not to name the accused, because she could have just said the accused, and instead she went with John Doe. And I don't think a lot of people will have a problem with that because of the the case and the gravity of the case, but you got to wonder, does it become a thing moving forward, and, and more importantly, you know, should it? And I'm not so sure, because courts are not supposed to be seen as political, and because of the fact incel considers this guy a hero, uh, some will see this as justified. And it doesn't change the fact, and I think it's important, his real name is very much in the ruling and on the record. So it's not like a blank. You pull up this case, you will see who we are talking about. But, you know, she went off script today and, and made what I think could be seen as a political decision. But, you know, for those directly impacted that day, be it those who witnessed the carnage the, that jumped into help, save lives, those who were killed, you know, family members left behind, or certainly those who were forever altered that day because they were hit or uh, became one of his targets. Uh, this notion that it is closure is absolutely just that. It, it is just a notion. I had no memory of what happened. Um, and so when, and I was in hospital for a couple of months, so when I did come to the trial, the uh, agreed statement of fact was a real shock to me. And uh, since that since that day, 
it has been very hard to absorb. It's like I'm going through trauma now that I didn't go through before. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and, you know, there, there never was a dispute that Manassian killed these people. He admitted it. And he admitted he also wanted to kill more. And he would have had a drink not uh, gone all over the windshield of that van that he was driving. He wanted to become a martyr. So, you know, today the decision wasn't deciding if Manassian murdered 10 people and tried to kill 13 more. Um, Justice Malloy had to decide his state of mind at the time. And so the defense, as we all know, it was controversial. It was this argument that his autism played a role, you know, that he didn't understand what he was doing at the time. So for her to get to criminally not responsible, the defense had to prove that a mental disorder played a role, you know, that he lacked the capacity to understand what he was doing and that it was wrong. And Justice Malloy was very clear in her ruling saying that, yes, they failed to convince her of that, pointing out, you know, that he wanted the fame, that he it was premeditated because he planned this over weeks and months. He was capable of knowing right and wrong and the consequences of his decisions. He also wanted to be killed by a cop, showing that he had this, you know, plan and the intention of becoming this incel martyr. But also important in her ruling, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit later because I think it kind of got buried, is that Malloy did make clear that autism qualifies as a mental disorder within the criminal code. But it all depends on the circumstances of the individual and how they're affected by their disability. And so what she said and I'll say it in layman's terms, is, you know, that this is a disease of the mind, and yes, it can be a defense, but it didn't fit here because it was clear that the accused spent time planning the killing spree, and he clearly wanted to do worse. But it can, in fact, be used as defense, which is why uh, many in the autism community are, are very upset. But again, it's been in the criminal code, you know, for some time, so it's not new. The other thing that this case proves is that we can very successfully carry out complex trials online. And, you know, they don't get much more high profile than this. Now, I personally do not think it should become the norm. I'm a bit of a traditionalist. Um, you know, I like being in the room. I, 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 it's important. I do think we should and can use it for lower court matters, smaller cases, you know, um, you know, free up the backlog system. But in these high-profile cases, um, and certainly when you come to very, very violent crimes, there is something very, very important for victims of violent crime, especially these kinds, because, you know, for them to be able to see the offender in person, to be able to watch them, to be able to see their body language, to be to be able to witness that justice is being done kind of up close and personal, um, to also have those court supports going through the process, it means something because they didn't get that in this case. They were home alone basically watching online. And so, you know, it is new, but it does prove that we can do it. The question is, you know, should we? We missed out on the experience of being there in the courtroom and, and feeling it as, as anyone would feel when they're going through this in a normal situation. So, uh it's tough. I don't know what it felt like if it was the other way around. I can tell you what it would feel like. It would feel, um, I mean, you, you cannot weigh the gravity. It is a very tense, very emotional 
nerve-wracking. Uh, it is a it is a space within its own that takes on a life of its own. And for those who are victims of crime, um, I think a big part of their healing is watching the process of justice in person. So, yes to getting these smaller matters put through um, lesser crimes, but I do think it, not every case can be done, uh, certainly online, but it does work. So now we wait for uh, sentencing. He gets automatic life sentence no matter what. He's, I don't think he'll ever see the daylight again. But, you know, Malloy's going to have to decide, you know, is she going to stack concurrent sentences? Because if she did, she could give him up to 250 years which would be uh, the biggest sentence in this uh, country's history. You know, or is he going to get a consecutive sentence, which we'd allow him to apply uh, for parole in 25 years? And uh, I do not think he would get parole, but we'll wait for the sentencing, which uh, happens in the next couple of weeks. But a very, very big day, and it was a very, very interesting uh, ruling, um, if you ask me. You're listening to On Point on Global News Radio. We can get fame in positive ways. We don't need to go down that road. So I really hope, I think she's setting a precedent for how things should be conducted moving forward. And if there's one thing that we can take away from today, it's that. We need to protect those who may be victims in the future by, by those who are trying you know, do this kind of fame. All right, so what does this verdict mean for the incel community? Because in a rare, if not unprecedented decision, the judge did not say the killer's name, albeit is in the ruling. But Justice Molloy made clear she wasn't going to use the time to feed into the infamy he clearly wanted to achieve on the day that he killed 10 and injured 13 by driving a van down Young Street. So is he a hero in this dark world of incel? Will he inspire others to follow suit? Because he did admit he wanted to kill as many women as he could, and he called, you know, it an act of revenge because he was denied affection and uh, motivated by incel, calling his own attack this day of retribution. And he remains unrepentant, and he admits he was enamored with the guy who carried out the first incel attack back in 2014. But, you know, while the judge did not want to feed into this world, sadly, it is a world growing aggressively all on its own. Colin Clark is a senior research fellow at the Sufin Center. He's a research focuses on domestic and transnational terrorism, international security and geopolitics. And he happens to know a whole lot about the world of incel. Good to have you. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm not sure what it's like down in the United States when it comes to this, but in Canada, it is very rare if uh, never happens that, um, you know, the, the accused wouldn't be named. How important would it be for the judge not to use the name of this guy? Does it actually fuel into the cause that he believes? Well, at this point, I, I mean, it's great in, in principle and practice, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, and I'll use his name here, Alec Manassi, and he, he put on you know his Facebook account, the incel rebellion has already begun. He's well known uh, and revered in this community, much as Elliot Roger is uh, venerated as almost, almost an icon of uh, this subculture. So is he seen as, as somewhat of a, he can't be a martyr because he, he, you know, he didn't get the cop to shoot him that day, but is he seen as a, a hero in that world? Yeah, I mean, you know, he's discussed as one among the incel community because one of the uh, big motivators there is this call to action. Uh, there's a lot of uh, criticizing uh, of other members of the incel community. They're constantly egging each other on to move out from beyond the keyboard and do something IRL in real life. And Manassian actually did that, like Elliot Roger did. Uh, and so... Um, you know, because he, because of that, he's got so-called street cred among this community, mm. which is exactly what he was looking for. 
Yeah, I mean, sadly, I mean, there's more education and attention on incel because of this case. Certainly, it would have been probably known more in the United States because of the, that attack back in 2014. But now, you know, it, it's known here, but it has festered and grown. And I was uh, reading some of your 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 work, um, and it really has exploded, uh, according to you, thanks a lot in part to the isolation of these lockdown measures. Yeah, no question. I mean, I think extremism and radicalization of almost every stripe has been accelerated during the COVID-19 lockdowns, and the incel subculture is no different. Uh, I would also point out that, you know, this extreme misogyny serves as kind of a a connective tissue between uh, the incel movement and other aspects of the far right, which is also kind of, you know, experiencing uh, somewhat of a renaissance, particularly in the United States, but also globally. And so would it cross then tentacles with, uh, obviously, uh, white supremacy groups, far-right extremist groups, QAnon? Do they all feed into each other? Yeah, there's a lot of overlap. Um, You know, certainly there's people that um, adhere to multiple kind of vectors within the far-right. And I think certainly uh, we've seen uh, the, the incel subculture be somewhat of a kind of feeder mechanism for this broader kind of far-right uh, extremist movement. I was surprised at the age of some of its members. I mean, some kids as young as nine are are, are joining this world. I mean, you, one wonders, you know, where where are the parents? But nine would seem extraordinarily young uh, to be influent. I mean, they're very influential, obviously, but nine is very young. Nine, nine is extremely young, and uh, but but as you've noted, people have been home. Uh, in their, you know, in their houses for the better part of the last year, parents that are attempting to work from home and care for other kids are tapped out. Uh, they're stretched to the max. And so nine-year-olds are probably getting more screen time uh, than ever before. And, you know, a nine-year-old's fairly self-sufficient compared to younger, you know, infants and toddlers. So uh, if they're left to their own devices, in this case, literally iPads or computers, well, you know, it, it's tough to kind of police what sites they go on and who they're interacting with as much as parents might attempt to do that. Yeah, I mean, hence this conversation I always have about, you know, careful handing your kid a very expensive um, smartphone because it can take them into a world that they don't yet understand and uh, it's too late by the time parents generally catch on. But, you know, in Congress on, uh, I think it was Monday, uh, there was testimony, it might have been yesterday, uh, testimony talking about domestic terror in connection with the Capitol Hill um, attacks. Is it too strong to designate a group like this as terror? I mean, they do go out and they're, 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 goal is to kill would they fit the term of domestic terror uh so in the united states we don't have a domestic terrorism statute as as you probably know and that's a big matter of debate right now in fact it came up yesterday in the senate judiciary hearing uh when lindsey graham was pressing fbi director christopher ray uh about you know is so-and-so a domestic terrorist group and you know he graham knew that we don't have a statute he was essentially asking do we need one um, and uh, Director Ray said it's a reasonable debate. It's a huge debate here in the counterterrorism mm-hmm. analyst community with people that I respect and smart people and thoughtful people falling on both sides of the debate. Well, I mean, given, uh, you know, these social media platforms are just, uh, you know, so free and open and it's uh, there are no regulations. And so it's been able to kind of fester and, and bring in people, outsiders who who gleefully go there. What is the best way in your mind then to educate about incel for, for younger people who might not understand what they're getting into? But how do you educate without glorifying? 
I think you have to educate the parents, number one, to know, you know, that this is a thing. Uh, and, and, you know, again, stress that they need to be vigilant about what their kids are doing online, who they're interacting with. And, you know, it's likely to prompt some uncomfortable discussions about uh, about sex and sexuality um, and relations between, you know, young young teenagers. So uh, you can't kind of sweep this stuff under the rug uh, because kids are going to learn and you, you'd rather have them learn from you than learn from the Internet. I think that's kind of without question. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I'm an advocate of free speech, uh, but at the same time, I mean, the dark web is, um, you know, it's uh, it's frothing right now. Um, so how do you, how do the social media companies deal with it without actually silencing opinions that they might not agree with? Yeah, that's you know another major question right now. It's a, it's a double-edged sword because deplatforming is a huge policy issue at the moment, um, but but you know, free speech reigns supreme. So. Um, I think it's always going to be a trade-off and, you know, how do you kind of strike the right balance between, um, you know, allowing people free speech, but when that speech becomes dangerous or, uh, you know, kind of calls on others uh, to commit acts of violence, it's clearly crossed a line. Um, QAnon was allowed to be uh, on Facebook for much longer than it probably should have been, right? Uh, and so there's this constant battle and there's going to be a new ideology that motivates violence. We're already seeing violence um, perpetrated against 5G cell towers. Mm-hmm. We're seeing it with the Netherlands just yesterday of an attack against a vaccine clinic. So we have to be very vigilant and, you know, more responsive than we've been. And we need to act quickly. We do, but we also have to be careful. You know, I'm of the mind, I want my hate out in the open. I, not mine personally, but I want the hate out in the open. I don't want, uh, I worry that some of the policies that could be implemented would drive this underground and therefore it can't be seen in order to be stopped. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We lose the value of what, what I would call open source intelligence or OSINT. Uh, at the same time, in the long run, uh, a lot of research shows that it's actually uh, deplatforming has a positive impact um, on, you know, lessening the, uh, the concerns over radicalization, right, and making sure that these hateful videos are offline instead of uh, remaining on there. We dealt with this with the Islamic State. We dealt with mm-hmm. this before that with um, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula spokesperson Anwar al-Awlaki. Well, it is a steep uh, challenge, no question about it, but uh, I think it's in both interests of the United States and Canada to get on this because uh, certainly... We've seen the costs on both sides of the border. Colin, I appreciate your uh, insight into this. Thanks for having me. I I really enjoyed joining you. That is Colin Clark, and he's with uh, the SUFON Center, which is a a group think uh, uh, down in the United States. They've looked a lot into this. And so, uh, you know, parents, warning to you, educate your kids before you hand them the technology, because a lot of times they don't understand what they're getting into. And then, of course, by the time they're in it, it is simply too late. Stay with us on Point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio. Jin Hoon Kim. So He Chung. Geraldine Brady. Chul Min Kang. Mary Elizabeth Forsyth. Manir Abdo Habib Najar. Anne-Marie D'Amico. Yudis Renuka Amarsinga. Dorothy Sewell. Andrea Brady. On April 23, 2018, these women and men were taken from their families, friends, colleagues, and the community by Mr. Doe. Sixteen other members of the community were seriously injured by him, many gravely so.
In addition, a neighborhood was attacked, leaving its residents fearful and traumatized. Today, her honor found Mr. Doe guilty. That is Crown Attorney Joseph Callahan, who uh, made sure to name those killed. And they were read aloud and uh, made sure also not to name the killer who um, today Justice Malloy stated, you know, she didn't want to do what he wanted, which is give him the fame. And um, Justice Malloy did not buy the defense theory that autism was the cause of this. She did not, however, say that autism cannot be used as a defense or it isn't feasible because it is, in fact, listed in the criminal code as a mental disorder. Uh, Lauren Honickman, of course, our global news radio legal expert, joining us. And um, let me ask you first, just before I, I go into to this other issue, Lauren, were you surprised that um, Justice Malloy didn't use his name? I mean, it's the first of my knowledge in this country that that hasn't happened, but it's not like he's been erased from the record. No, I know. But what she said, um, and I guess I was one of 6,000 people, by the way, who uh, mm. watched this on YouTube this morning. Um, what she said, what, what bothered her about the whole thing was the fact that because he was named, he got the notoriety that he wanted. And mm. that was her whole issue about, about the naming. And that um, she said I, she wasn't going to make an order that you can't use his name, but that she was sort of hinting and urging not that, um, that his name wasn't used because he had said, and the evidence was overwhelming, that what he did and why he was doing it is he wanted the notoriety. That was the all right. part and parcel of what he wanted done. So it was, right. um, you know, I, I found... I, li- I like... A- yeah, I find it interesting, and I have a lot of respect for Justice Malay. I've done a lot of her cases, but is it really yeah. her job to kind of push for that? I mean, is she overstepping a line here? Uh, I don't. You know what? I, 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 my eyebrow went out as she was about to say that, and then I thought, I, I think because she just saw and she lived and breathed this and saw what this person was all about and what he wanted, she was trying to send a message out. But I agree with you. It's not really hmm. something that we need from the judiciary. You either are going to rule that you can't name somebody or you do. Uh, you don't we need a little a tweak here to say maybe you don't want to in the future. But I certainly understand her reasons as to why. Because she even said, she said, it's not, I'm not making this order. It's merely a wish, perhaps a naive one. And um, yeah, if, if she had made the order, I would have had a real problem with it yeah, because no, no. you just yeah, can't, we can't sanitize the courts like that. No, I mean, I mean, no, when no. it comes to youth crime and certainly sexual assault um, survivors, you know, you don't 100%. name those that, that I understand. But, I, you know, it's it, it was her option. And, she, and it's again, if you want to see it, it's in the ruling and we all know who we're talking about. But I do find it interesting. And, and it was you who raised it. And I was listening to her as, a, as she read out uh, parts of of uh, her decision um and and she spoke about the fact that yes autism is a mental disorder and, and right. it is in the criminal code so it can be used as defense so she didn't buy it and it just didn't work for this case in her mind that's right because as you know you have to start by saying does the accused suffer from a, a disease of the mind and then once you if if you make that finding then you go to the next step is did the disease of the mind make him or her incapable of appreciate, appreciation, appreciating the nature and quality mm-hmm. of the act or incapable of knowing it was wrong? And so she came out and she, after going through, and, and by the way, so everybody knows, she only read part of her decision on, on YouTube. You go and read mm-hmm. the decision Thank and it's a comprehensive analysis. So when she, yeah. she makes 
the the finding that yes, AS, uh, ASD is a disease of the mind. And she goes, okay, but that's uh, to use her words. That's by no means the end of the analysis, but only the beginning. And that's when she went into the real comprehensive analysis of did he know, did he appreciate the nature and consequence, did he know what he did was wrong, and her overwhelming finding was that, yes, he had a functioning, rational brain, and uh, those are her words, and he's, quote, one that perceived the reality of what he was doing, knew what was morally wrong by society's standards, and contrary to everything he had been taught about right or wrong, he made the choice, he chose to commit the crimes. And Yeah, and, and not to mention the planning. I mean, she, she spoke to the planning, because he planned yeah. this for a long time, and he went into this dark uh, world on the web and talked about, you know, and, and had a name for it. So there's the premeditation, you know, with that. And so That's right. it's an interesting case, and it's upset the autism community without question, um, and, right. and rightly so, but it is a part of the criminal code. That's right. And so so what it means, and she even uses the words about that, it can open the door to a, a Section 16 defense, and that's the section of the criminal code dealing with not criminally responsible. So, so yes, there is the possibility, of course, that autism, as, as defined, if the evidence is there, can be considered a disease of the mind, and you get into that first step. The other part about it, of course, was that you remember, Alex, what, uh, and we talked about this several times, you and I, the battle mm. of experts. And of course, there was the one expert yeah. Yeah. that the defense was really relying on this. Uh, I think it's Dr. Westfall, if I remember his name. Um, out of the U.S. Yeah, out of the U.S. And she had a lot of problems with his evidence. And she and she go. And again, uh, if you ever if you want to read it, because she goes through each expert's evidence in, in, in very, very careful detail. Uh, but she had the problem with what doctor, what that doctor was concluding and how he was concluding it as to whether or not it was, you know, causing him something that would be tantamount to a, a psychosis or being detached from reality. And, and she rejected that. And she didn't just mm -hmm. reject it outright because she didn't like it. She rejected it based on all the other evidence she heard and everything that was there. And remember, she yeah. had everything in front of her. Uh, not only, yeah. of course, the expert evidence and she she the the video uh, of him giving his statement very important mm -hmm. as well. And um, and we talked about that as as well. And so so for the families I saw today, of course. Um, there was a, a sense of relief, and that's understandable. And now he right. faces uh, conviction mm -hmm. of 26 counts, 10 of them being yeah. first-degree murder. Right? It'll be interesting to see whether or not the Crown will be seeking consecutive sentences. Well, you know, 250 years in jail sounds about right to me, so I don't have a problem with that. Let's see these stacked sentences put into good use, no? Uh, well, we'll see. I, I think they're back, <laughs> what, two weeks to, to, yeah. to talk about to talk about sentencing, but uh, you, everybody out there, uh, it's it's an interesting read, and and I, I urge everybody. I think it's something like fifty pages, but um, yeah. it's it's interesting. You can see just how detailed Justice Malloy was in her uh, deliberations. Nonetheless, it does feel like justice has somehow been served today. So we will stay tuned to the sentencing. Um, Lauren, appreciate the uh, insight into this. My pleasure. Talk soon. Lauren Honigman joining us here with, uh, there you go, that ruling kind of went, um, that part of her ruling kind of went under the radar. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio.
Uh, question, who is Aaron O'Toole and what does he have to offer to those looking desperately for change? And I know him, nice guy, but a lot of people don't. And, you know, we've got all these rumors of a spring election getting louder. And I'm worried, you know, and I think a lot of people are wondering, you know, if he doesn't put something in the window, then people will look away if they're looking at all. But uh, there are apparently members of the Conservative Party themselves who are concerned that O'Toole is going to move the party, um, you know, more towards accepting a carbon tax. And O'Toole's promised a robust climate policy. He's embraced the Liberals' goal of net zero by 2050. But, you know, while he's ruled out maintaining the Liberal government's existing carbon tax, how does he reach that goal without some kind of pricing? Which, of course, if he does, will infuriate the base, especially farmers who are paying the dearest price. Laurie Goldstein, editor, of course, over at the Toronto Sun, who does a lot of coverage on this as a columnist, he joins us now. Good to have you. Great to be here, Alex. Let me ask you this on a strategy. I mean, if you were advising um, uh, Aaron O'Toole, and maybe you should, uh, what would you be telling him to do for his climate plan? Because it is an issue that he's got to deal with, and he's got to put something up that makes sense and doesn't um, take people's money and do nothing. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't advise him what his climate plan should be because, you know, that's not my job. Nobody's elected me. But I would say you've hit it. You have to be, You have to have clarity on this issue. If Aaron O'Toole is saying he's going to match Justin Trudeau's promise of reducing our uh, industrial greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2050, then there's no way he can't put a price on those emissions. Now, you can do that in different ways. You can do it through um, a carbon tax, which is what um, Trudeau has chosen. You can do it through uh, what's called cap and trade which some people say is a more capitalistic way of doing it by establishing a, basically a stock market in these emissions, or you can do it by increased regulation. But in, in any of those, there'll be more costs. If you do it by increased regulation, what does that mean? It means that greenhouse gas emitters will face uh, more rules, more policies that they must adhere to, and that will cost them more money. Now, if you're asking me what I would personally do if I was um, the uh, leader of the Conservative Party, which I am not, the first thing I would do is I would pull us out of the Paris Climate Accord. And I would mm. tell Canadians I was going to do that because the Paris Climate Accord negates our sovereignty and our ability to pursue our energy policy, which is the real issue here. It's not climate change. It's control over energy policy that's the issue. We are a country with vast natural resources, and they help pay for things like our social programs, our oil and gas, and even to some extent coal resources do that. And to me, what, we are, what at least the Liberal Party is doing is it's pursuing a policy that cuts our economy. We're cutting our own throat. No country does that. The United States didn't do that. They have, they have no carbon tax. Joe Biden did not campaign on a carbon tax. And mm. they have lowered their um, emissions much more successfully than Canada because of technological innovation. They used mm. fracking to free up vast resources of natural gas, and they use that natural gas to replace their coal-fired electricity. Since natural gas burns at half the carbon intensity of coal, um, their emissions have both Canada and the United States agreed in 2009 under the Copenhagen Accord 
to lower their emissions to, let me remember, 17% below 2005 levels by 2020. Now, the United States, never mind through Trump or Bush or Obama, blah, 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 2020 is over. And the credible estimates are that the United States reduced its emissions without a national carbon tax by 20 to 21 percent, easily surpassing the goal uh, they agreed to with Canada of 17 percent below 2005. In Canada, with all the talking and the rhetoric and the chest beating and, and you don't care about the climate and, and da 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 and liberals, and, you know, they're going to save the planet and all that stuff. You know what our emissions dropped compared to 2005 levels? 0.14 percent. We are not going to hit the Paris climate targets we've agreed to, uh, which is now 30 plus percent by 2030. Um, you know, Trudeau promised he was going to do it all along. We're not going to do it. And we're not going to reach 2030. And we're not going to reach 2050. And in any event, the Paris climate, which is a UN accord, the United Nations already says we're going to have to do way more than the Paris commitments, which we're not meeting. So the first thing I would do is I would do what Stephen Harper did. I would do what Donald Trump did. Harper pulled us out of the Kyoto Accord. I thought he was right. And Trump pulled the United States out of the Paris Climate Accord. Because you can, you can be a responsible player on the environment without signing on to these global, top-down, uh, UN-inspired treaties that all they do is take, well, they don't legally take away our sovereignty, but politically they do. And so what happens... Sure. We're always talking about meeting these ridiculous um, uh, targets that we're not going to meet. And even if we met it, we're 1.6% of global emissions. And there are not similar requirements put on China, India, um, and all of the developing world as they're put onto us. And I'm not saying that's because these developing world countries are bad. It's because they have practical problems. Whatever we think, whatever I think of China, I don't blame it that it uses coal to fire its electricity. That's its best source, and it has to keep you know over a billion people fed, or they're going to starve. And so yeah. every country, but the point is, every country, including the United States, which is the second largest emitter, and China, which is the largest emitter, make their decisions about energy policy based on their interests. Canada right. is not doing that right now. No, we are, we and we're determined. I mean, it's clear. Interest. Right, and we're determined to destroy our natural resources and still not meet these targets. But you know, the the, the narrative is that it doesn't really cost anybody anything, and and so you know, it's it's all revenue neutral. But you know, that might work in cities like Toronto or big urban centers like Montreal, Vancouver, whatever. But if you're a farmer, if you're someone who actually has to pay the cost of it. There's a real divide, and it's very expensive for those who actually do have to pay it, and it's not revenue neutral. Uh, no, and, and, and look, there's a whole bunch of things to talk about there. When we talk about revenue neutrality, the only guarantee from Trudeau is, is about four provinces. It's not about all of the country. He introduced what he called a, a floor price for carbon dioxide emissions, and that's mm-hmm. going to be, well, right now it's, it's, gonna, it's about to go to $40 per tonne, I think a month from now, and $170 tonne by 2030. So, and so that's where you have these rebates. Now, I've written about this. The rebates aren't totally um, revenue neutral. 
80% of households are not getting um, more money back, as the government claims. The numbers are lower because they base the 80% only on natural gas and gasoline, and they don't do the indirect costs. Um, also, they, they charge GST on, um, on the um, carbon tax, tax on a tax. They don't fund that to us. Um, but also, this whole, like, nothing is free. You can't do this for free. What you were doing, what we're doing here is putting a charge on something we've never put a charge on before, which is greenhouse gas emissions from industrial processes. If you put a charge on it, somebody has to pay for it. And so, yeah. um, you know, but then there's, what's the, what's the damage that happens regardless of all this nonsense about revenue neutral, the myth of revenue neutrality. Okay, let's mm -hmm. look at an example of Ontario. What happened in Ontario? The previous yeah. Liberal government in Ontario did a very good thing. They eliminated coal-fired electricity, which was 25% of their emissions. They got rid of it entirely. That was good. It's always good to lower the use of the most polluting carbon, uh, sorry, fossil fuel, because, because carbon, um, coal is the most polluting. And what did they replace it with? They replaced it with natural gas, which burns at half the carbon intensity of coal, and nuclear power. And they reduced the emission. I mean, they got rid of coal. Great. One of the great, I mean, I always credit the liberals of Ontario. That was one of the great things for the environment and the global environment and the environment of people in Canada and Ontario, because those emissions were traveling all over the place, stopped it. Okay. What was the problem? The problem was they engaged in this enormous boondoggle of wind and mm -hmm. solar power, which cost billions and billions of dollars and contributed to the doubling of electricity prices in a decade. And it wasn't necessary because what they actually used was nuclear power and natural gas. How do we know that? Coal-fired electricity was 25% of Ontario's power, um, you know, a decade ago or two decades ago. You can't replace it with wind and solar because Today, they only produce yeah. four or five, six. You can't replace four or five, six percent with 26, with, you know, for 25. You just can't. So the problem there was that we wasted billions of dollars, I guess, because the liberals wanted to be praised by Al Gore on 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 a ridiculous boondoggle of wood. And, and the problems there, yeah. auditor generals have all talked about. I'm not going to go into it. Right. But um, but what was the ultimate irony? The ultimate irony is that the gas plants that they use to actually lower emissions along with nuclear, a uh, nuclear doesn't emit any um, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so, so they like, but why did they need the natural gas plants anyway? Yeah. They were building a whole bunch of them that, that led to the gas plant scandal, but why did they need them? They needed them to back up the wind and solar energy yeah, exactly. because wind and solar are intermittent. So see, this is the problem, yeah. Alex, this, this whole thing where they go revenue neutral and we're going to have a tax that's all going to make us all richer. It's people know that's nonsense. Well, they you would know hope that's so, but, no. And you got to explain that to people. You have to explain that, that, I mean, so what would I do? What is the first thing I would do if I was Aaron O'Toole to make it short and sweet? Tell people the truth. Yeah. Start well, with that. that would that would be uh, that would take leadership, Laurie, and that's uh, hard to find these days. But uh, but at least you break it down well, and I always appreciate it, Laurie. I gotta go. I'm up against the clock, as they say on that one. Thank always you. Always a pleasure. Take care. If only Laurie Goldstein would run, and then maybe we'd uh, be able to elect a conservative government. But I cannot convince him to do that. Stay with us here on Point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio. You of course can join us Monday through Friday, starting six thirty sharp. I'm Alex Pearson here on Point, and this is Global News Radio.